in my line of work, I receive a lot of communications and a lot of emails from a lot of people. But more often than not, I get a piece of communication, whether it's a text or a phone call or an email, when something has gone wrong. I don't usually get the calls when things have gone wonderful. I, I, it's very rare that I get a, Pastor Taylor, I want to share with you, I got a promotion at work. I don't get a lot of those phone calls. I get the, I just lost my job. I just found out that my wife cheated on me. I just learned that I got a bad diagnosis. I usually get calls about something when something is bad. Years ago, I got a phone call from a man whose wife, or sorry, a man whose mother was about to die. I had recently buried his father, who was 99 years old at the time, and his mother, who was 98, was very near the end of her life. They had recently celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary. Just think about that for a second, 75 years of marriage. And so I had uh, presided over his funeral, and she was close to the end of life. And so I got in my car, and I drove over to her house, and I knocked on the door, and uh, an in-home medical professional was there, and she answered the door. Uh, and so she let me in, and I said, I I'm here to speak to Lucy. And she said, well, let me go upstairs and, and see if she's, she's up for company. And I said, well, tell her the preacher's here. And so this woman went upstairs, and she came back, and she said, well, Miss Lucy is, is a little unsure, but she, she said, you can come upstairs. So I went upstairs, and she was laying in her bed on her side, and she couldn't really move anymore. So uh, I got down on my knees by the side of her bed, and I said, hey, Lucy, it's Taylor. And she said, I just want you to know, it's not every day I invite a young man into my bedroom. <laughs> and we got to laughing. And it was this wonderful time we had that afternoon together. We talked about her husband. We talked about her time in the community. We talked about the church. We just shared all these wonderful moments. She made me laugh. I made her laugh. And we both, I think, kind of knew that this was very likely to be the last time that we would see each other in this mortal coil. And so I offered to pray for her, and I grabbed her by her hands, and I prayed by the side of her bed. And then when I got up to leave, she said, preacher, would you grab my pocketbook? And I said, sure, Lucy. And I went over and I grabbed her pocketbook and I brought it over to her. And she said, I'd like to write a check to the church. I said, Lucy, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. What I wanted to say is you're about to die. Why are you thinking about this right now? I said, Lucy, you, you don't have to write a check. And she said, oh, I absolutely have to write a check, Pastor Taylor. I said, Lucy, why are you so insistent on sending me back to church with a check? And she said, oh, because I believe in the church of tomorrow. She said, because I believe in the church of tomorrow. She died the next day. Our scripture reading today comes from Hebrews 11, 29 through chapter 12, verse 2. Hear now God's word. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land, but when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. 
Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better so that they would not apart from us be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight of the sin that clings so closely. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Few, if any of us, come to church on Sunday morning in order to be astonished. Sure, we might clap because a song is moving and grooving. There might be a line in a prayer that lingers long after in our hearts. We might even ooh and ah over uh, seeing a child say something during a children's message or, or seeing someone dance in the middle of worship. We might even say amen in the midst of a sermon because miracles do happen. But astonishment, I don't think we come to church expecting to be astonished. We don't have time for astonishment in our manicured machinations on Sunday morning. We like our church just, we like, just like we like our God within our control. We appreciate boundaries and expectations and predictability, and yet all of us have come to church today. We've gathered before the throne of God. We open up the good book, and what do we find? By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. How dare the writer of Hebrews We've got the young, and we've even got the restless present in worship this morning. This is not the place for such vulgarities. A prostitute. Now, other translations, they soften the blow. They call Rahab a harlot. That's what my grandmother would call her. Other translations call Rahab a whore. Well, I'm not going to actually say that word out loud. But there it is. Clear as day in the strange new world of the Bible, Rahab the prostitute and her faith. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, they're all good and fine. We can handle their stories. We might even be moved by their faith. But Rahab, I mean, do you know her story? If you don't, let me tell it to you. Rahab the prostitute. We've got Joshua. He is guiding God's people after the time of Moses. He's brought the people of Israel to the edge of the promised land. He sends two spies ahead into occupied territory to assess the situation. They approach the big city all of its flashing lights, Jericho. And they wind up, these two spies, of all places, at Rahab's in the red light district. I wonder why they went there. Let your imaginations wander. Anyway, the king receives word that foreign spies have infiltrated his domain. He dispatches some rough and tough foot soldiers to weed them out. They knock on Rahab's door because Rahab knows everybody. And she lies. 
right to their faces. She's batting her, you know, her eyelashes. Sure, sure, big fellas. I saw some boys like the, the two you're describing. But they paid their tabs, and, and they left a long time ago. Meanwhile, our, our hardworking harlot has actually hidden the spies within the thatch of her roof. She returns to them, and she, all she says is, I've heard of your God, and I would appreciate some mercy being flung my way when the walls of the city come down. She hangs a scarlet thread from her window, which incidentally is where we get the idea of a red light district. I know you've never heard of or thought of or encountered a red light district before, but this is where it comes from. From the Bible, come on. She hangs a red thread from her window to remind the spies and their people who she is and what she had done. And when Joshua and the army of God enter Jericho, the red threaded house in the red light district is the only one spared in the entire city. So to be clear, Rahab is a prostitute, she is a liar, and she is a traitor to her own people. And the writer of Hebrews says she is part of the Faith Hall of Fame. It is downright astonishing. Amen indeed, Steph Dickinson. <laughs> it's astonishing. But maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't so astonishing, because if you spend even the slightest amount of time in the strange new world of the Bible, you'll discover that Rahab's story is not very unique. You've got naked Noah, abandoning Abraham, Murdering Moses, deceptive David, perjuring Peter, on and on and on. All these people. Apparently faith is the recognition that, oddly enough, no matter what we've done or left undone in the past, God can use us now and in the future. It seems like the writer of Hebrews is, is calling to our attention the fact that someone like Rahab, if someone like Rahab can be used for the purposes of the kingdom, just imagine what God can do with you. Freeman the harlot, David, the prostitute. Just imagine what God can do with you. But then everything shifts in the letter. We read of the, these heroes of the face, some of whose names we might know, some who we don't, some who might seem like heroes, but some who definitely don't. We read about the abject terror, the suffering they endured because they were faithful to God. We read of these extreme and serious and staggering details about the cost of discipleship. And then the writer gathers all of them up into the great cloud of witnesses. And then we are addressed by the letter across the great centuries of the church, you and me. All of these, they were commended for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had providing something better so they would, apart from us, not be made perfect. Their stories come to fruition in us. We are the fruit from the seeds they planted long ago. Look to Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who mounted the hard wood of the cross on our behalf, who now rules at the right hand of God. In short, you and me, we're not alone. We are bound to those from the past, those in the present, and those in the future in ways that we can scarcely even imagine. We are caught up in the triumph of the Trinity. We are no longer defined by our sins and our shortcomings, but only by the grace and peace made possible by God in Christ. All these verses in Hebrews, I call them the, the faith hall of fame, they ring out for all of us to hear, our faith is not in us. What rotten luck it would be if our faith was in us. Have you watched the news recently? Our faith is not in us. Our faith is in Jesus. 
And what good news it is to hear that Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, particularly at a time when we spend most of our time thinking about and even yearning about going backward. Jesus is ahead of us. He's beckoning us to a new and astonishing reality, perhaps something we might call the church of tomorrow. Christianity, contrary to how we often talk about it and even describe it or understand it, isn't really a religion. A religion is a system of beliefs and rituals that get the divine to do something for us, whereas Christianity is the story of God who does the imaginable for us without us having to do anything in return. I mean, the Lord is not waiting with his arms on the cross until we get our acts together. Instead, God condescends to our miserable estate, gathers people like you and me together, and says, follow me. To be the church in the world today is a very weird and wild endeavor. If we find ourselves only concerned with matters of life after death, or if we are only consumed with thoughts of holy figures and sacred rituals, then we're not really the church. We may be, and we may even do those things, but the church means being part of an adventure, a way of being in the world right now. Put very simply, we're very different. We're different in terms of space. We, we open our doors to people who are not part of us. We're different in terms of story because we understand that who we are is not something we've earned or achieved, but a gift that has been given. We are different in terms of time because we believe that God's future is overlapping with our present. We've received new pasts. In baptism, you're told, no matter what you've done or left undone, all of your sins, the past, the present, even the ones you haven't thought up of yet, are nailed to the cross, and Jesus leaves them there forever. Your past is made new. But at the same time, your future is also made new, filled with impossible possibilities that rain down for nothing. We're different. We're like Rahab. With the tiniest pinch of faith, we step into future, God's future, and everything changes and sadly, it's all too easy at times to lose sight of how weird it is to be part of the church. I mean, for many years, we've, we've tried to appear as appealing as possible to those outside, whereas the real test of whether the church is the church is if we are sufficiently unacceptable to the world. We are not just another social club or a gathering that provides a needed distraction from what's going on in the world, though it would be nice to be distracted from everything that's going on in the world. That's not who we are. We're the body of Christ. We model God's future in the present. We live by grace. We, we believe in trust and honesty and forgiveness in the midst of a time when those words all sound like fairy tales. The church is God's parable for the world. We are God's weird story for a time and place that is desperate for a new narrative, albeit one that will leave others scratching their heads. So the kingdom of God is like a woman from our church who walks down the hallway at the hospital in the middle of the night having just heard that her husband needs emergency surgery in order to survive. And as she walks all alone and the terror of the moment starts to sink in, she steps into the waiting room with nothing but abject fear until she realizes that the room is full to the brim from church people from church in the middle of the night who got up and went to wait in the waiting room to be there with her simply so she would know she's not alone. 
The kingdom of God is like a parent in the midst of vacation Bible school who approaches a certain balding and bearded pastor, incredulous that the church would be willing not only to, to watch her children for a week, but that we would also love them, that we would feed them, and lo and behold, we would teach them about Jesus for free. The kingdom of God is like the man who walked down the center aisle last week when we had communion with his hands outstretched and tears streaming down his face. Who, when that pastor approached him afterwards on the front lawn to ask if everything was okay, he said, there were tears of joy. Tears of joy. I don't know if you knew what you were getting into when you walked into church whether you've been here for decades, or this is your first Sunday, the truth is none of us knows what God is really up to. I mean, read the Gospels. They make it wonderfully clear that these would-be disciples hadn't the foggiest idea of what they were getting into. With a simple follow me, Jesus calls ordinary, if not awful people to come out and be part of an adventure, a journey that astonishes at every single turn. You and me, we're not alone. We are surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses. People like Rahab, people like Lucy, people who brought us to where we are right now. And because we are caught up in their story, because it can't be made perfect until it's made perfect in us, we right now can do weird and wild things too. We can cast away the works of darkness. We can be the place where loneliness comes to an end. We can befriend the friendless and love the loveless. We can do all sorts of weird and wild things because the grace of Jesus really is the difference that makes all the difference. So welcome to the church of tomorrow. It's astonishing. Really astonishing. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.